Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Precision Health Pod, where we talk to the people building and experiencing the future of health. Today, we want to welcome Taylor, who has spent his career focused on personalizing medicine, now as head of research at Levels, previously co-founder and chief scientific officer at Color Health, uh, and he's also published multiple papers in the field. Welcome, Taylor. Rachel, thanks for having me. To get started, I would love to hear a little bit more about how you got to where you are and, and how you got started. Sure. Yeah, it was... Um a bit of a, a windy path, I would say. Um, I started off as a software developer a long time ago and kind of <clears throat> eventually got into medicine. I didn't go to med school until I was 25. Um, and I feel like ever since then, I've been trying to figure out how to bring those two worlds closer together. Um, in med school, I spent some time working at MIT and then I did a Howard Hughes fellowship to uh, learn more about systems biology. And then um, during my residency in clinical pathology at UCSF, really got into genetics. Uh, and that was where I um, first, I think, really was felt like computers were making a, an impact uh, in medicine. And um, I helped a guy named Charles Chu develop uh, some software that uh, is now a derivative of that is used by the CDC for outbreak detection. We were, we were looking at early genetics experiments, trying to um, understand how we could take um, RNA-seq, which is now a pretty standard technique. Um, back then it was, it was pretty novel and apply it to pathogen detection to see if we could identify existing and then new um, viral threats. Uh, and from there, you know, built a kind of at the intersection of computer science and, and um, genetics. Uh, and then, for, you know, started that, that led to, I, I think it, it's really interesting, you know, going from, sorry, this is a little disjointed, but I, I think my arc kind of took me from the East coast to the West coast. And once I got to the Bay area, um, the opportunities were kind of all over the place. Um, and I think just being in that milieu for a little while exposed me to different sorts of folks that I could work with. And that led to, you know, starting Color Health and then uh, another company and now um, Levels. So I feel like it's been, you know, I, I pick something that I like and then I do it if it works and, and if I like it. And if I don't, I try something else. And so I've, I've just kind of repeated that process over and over until you get to bigger and bigger things. Yeah, um, it sounds like. Oh, go okay. ahead. I was going to say, yeah, it sounds like health that it has been such a center of your education and professional, just kind of continuing to level up. Is it always something um, that's also been part of you kind of personally um, where you're focusing on your individual health? More and more in the last few years, I would say um, my, my work ethic in my twenties and thirties was not compatible with really good health, <laughs> but it is, it is more now. Um, and I think it's um, yeah, it, it, I've, I've always tried to um, find opportunities that are at the intersection of where resources is av are available and where we can make a big difference. And um, healthcare for me was an, an easy one there, right? It, it, there's, there's such a big difference that you can make in people's lives um, when healthcare is done right. And then it's just matching that with the right resources um, to get things done. Um, in terms of my personal health, I think the transition into levels has been really interesting because now I wear a CGM all the time. and I'm actually looking at these metrics day in, day out and kind of experimenting on myself as a way to then hopefully generalize to something that's about, that's relevant for people more broadly. 
Definitely. And other than levels, is there anything else that you're doing from a tools or kind of routine perspective um, for your health? Yeah. I mean, I guess there are a whole bunch of things. Um, after, um, after I left color in 2017 or 2018, I started thinking a lot about what the modern physical would look like. And it came up with this, you know, so, uh, in the 1970s, um, there was a big study that Canada did to try and improve the physical exam, the annual physical that was done. And the interesting finding that came out of that was that they decided based on the evidence that um, actually they should can the practice of doing a physical altogether. And we, so we've known for 50 years, and actually, if you look at it, that the, the um, I don't know whether it's the AMA or one of the national physician bodies did a study follow-up in, in like 2015 that basically found the same conclusion. So I was thinking, well, what, what would the modern physical really look like? And I came up with a set of labs that are tested on a regular basis, imaging. And now I think what I've added with levels is real time data. So being able to just see in real time how you're responding to the food that you're eating, the sleep that you're getting, the stress that you're under, the exercise, et cetera. And so that's kind you, of the way I think of it. Go ahead. And as you think about that modern physical, so we have we have more data now than ever before. Um, folks like levels, even routine, there's whoop, there's aura. What do you see that still missing from what we really need to get to that optimal kind of physical check-in? I think we actually have all the tools that we need. Now it's a matter of putting them together in the right way and also looking for measuring the right thing. I think we have traditionally approached healthcare as avoiding disease. And if you think about that as a, as a general problem, it's actually quite hard to avoid all disease. It's much easier to maintain health and to move toward health. The problem is we don't have a great quantitative definition for what health is. And I think that's kind of the next step. So I think we actually, the, the tools are there. Um, we need to make them available in the right format at the right time. And we need to measure things in the right way. So as they were able to do that, make them available in the right format, get the measuring, what do you think kind of health wellness and sick care look like in 10 years? Man, I hope we can do this in 10 years. The, you know, the, the traditional thinking is from inception to, uh, you know, being in the clinic is 18 years. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in 20 years, we're still figuring this out. But um, I think the, I, th I think we could move from a situation where we're predominantly trying to stave off diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, we have massive rates of obesity to a situation where people are using tools to optimize their health behaviors and they're avoiding a lot of these things just by doing the right thing on a day-to-day -day basis. I think we have the, we understand enough scientifically and we now have the tools, most of the tools to do that. Um, but I think it's going to take a massive change in the way that doctors think about disease that um, we, and, and also the, in ways that we apply resources. Uh, there, traditionally, there's been very little applied to preventive care. And a lot of it comes in the last year of life, right? We, we've all seen those graphs of healthcare expenditure by decade and, and by um, stage of disease. And we need to kind of flip that, right? It turns out it actually doesn't take a ton of work to identify and change things 
when you're in the early stages of the disease. But uh, it's we just don't have a great system put together to do it. And and I think the the primary thing that needs to change for us to be able to build that system is is the incentives. We need to change the incentive structure for healthcare. We need to get away from fee for service, and we need to move. I mean. You know, we've we've started that process, and and I think that some of the new Medicaid um, uh, like initiatives are going down that right path. But I think it's pr- predominantly an issue of incentives for the medical industry. And when it, we look at incentives and kind of think about from a healthcare provider, even um, from a health system standpoint, they're relying on research and data. Um, but as you look at what's coming through, there's way less research on the approach to personalized medicine, on what N equals one means, on how it impacts health in the long term. So from a scientific perspective, from a researcher perspective, how do you think about kind of marrying the fact that we have all this data, but it hasn't been put into practice in a way that is traditionally how providers or healthcare systems look at, does this work? Yeah, I th- so I think there are a few steps there. Um, the first and the most um, the most obvious thing is that we have we now have well maybe I'll back up a little bit. When you look at the general progression of medical research uh, over the last 50, 60 years, for things like cancer, heart disease, uh, stroke, we go from a situation where we start treating the end stage of disease. So initially we were treating stage three and stage four cancers. And then we started to identify early biomarkers of cancer. Um, things like, you know, PSA, we do mammograms on women to, you know, identify early stage breast cancer. So we've, as we understand more about these diseases, we develop earlier and earlier ways of markers of detection. Uh, and then ultimately you can get to the point where um, you can actually identify the thing before it actually happens. And because we have early stage biomarkers, the, the one that's most relevant to me these days is HbA1c for diabetes. We, we know that a high HbA1c is correlated with long-term bad outcomes. It's correlated with diabetes. There's, a, there, there's an increased correlation with cardiovascular disease. I mean, there are other factors that come into play there, but we know that an, that an HbA1c uh, is correlated with bad outcomes. Now, the next step is to then optimize HbA1c for people. And we have a number of those types of markers that we can start to use in the clinical space that we know are associated with outcomes. And that if, if we were able to show with a particular program, for instance, um, like Verda Health is a great example of this. They were able to drop average uh, A1c by, by I think 1.2, 1.4 points over 10 weeks. That's something that becomes very clinically relevant. Doctors buy in, um, you know, insurance companies are willing to reimburse it. In 2021, Verda recorded, I think, 133% growth. So there's a real path going from markers rather than disease outcomes to something that that doctors will will use. And that already is a big advance because now you're not doing 10-year studies, you're doing one to two-year studies. The next thing from there is going from HbA1c and other types of markers that are correlated with outcomes to um, things that are correlated with health. So I think what we're going to start to see, and this is a, you know, you've seen Altos Labs, that there are a bunch of large uh, endeavors and tons of money that's been put into the longevity space, trying to identify markers of quote unquote biological age, things that, that basically correlate with good, 
with, with high functioning versus low functioning physiology. And once we can tie those types of biomarkers to the, the A1Cs of the world, then we have a real continuum for measuring health improvement, right? So you can imagine, and we've already started to see this. So there were a couple of studies that came out showing the correlation between the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean diet and biological age. So, um, and that's a real visceral one for people. So eating this Mediterranean diet for, I think it was 12 or 20 weeks resulted in a, an average biological age reduction of two years, right? Great. I took two years off my life, right? By eating a Mediterranean diet. Um, those are not yet to the point where clinicians are ready to buy into them, but we're pretty close. And I think tying real-time metrics to those metrics like HbA1c is also something that's going to be really helpful because then people can get real-time feedback on what they're doing and we know oh my spike's been changing to this type of a spike that's a bad sign or oh that's actually a very good sign um, so I think the the next stage here is taking those intermediate intermediate metrics that we know are already tied with outcomes um, and and then being able to um, get real-time data that we know correlates with them um, or get data that like is associated with a biological age marker, which is more comprehensive. Um, because A1C, of course, really only applies to the sugar levels in your bloodstream. It doesn't apply to fats. It doesn't apply to all these other things where a, a, biological, a, a um, biological age marker is, at least in theory, much more broadly applicable to general health. So we'll move from this state where we're you know, originally we were tied to outcomes and physicians wouldn't do anything until you could demonstrate a correlation with outcomes. Now we have these intermediate metrics. The next thing will be things that are correlated with health. And, and that's where I think things get really exciting. And that, that will probably take five to 10 years to establish. Um, but once we do, I think it'll, it will be obvious how to move toward health rather than moving away from disease. It's exciting to think about. I mean, it, there's a lot to be done there, but I think that we're we're at least on the path and not only the people kind of looking at their their data themselves, but the the more mainstream folks and the folks that are more difficult to convince. It sounds like there's there's a path there as well. Uh, well, this is a great segue into kind of talking a little bit more about what you are doing at levels. Um, it's a lot about real-time data. It's a lot about thinking about how metabolic health can cor correlate to overall health. Um, so to start, for anyone in the audience that doesn't know what Levels does, uh, what exactly are you working on, and, and what's the what's hmm. the goal there? Yeah, well, let's let's start with Levels generally. I mean, right now, Levels tells you how food impacts your health. Uh, it it helps you identify and and kind of pick apart how the meals that you're eating and the things that you're doing are impacting your glucose level, and then correlating that with your your overall health, so that you can improve your diet, improve the things that, that you're consuming um, in, so that uh, I, I think that the fundamental issue that most people have today is there are diets that are recommended to them by all different types of folks. And those diets may or may not be good for them depending on their individual makeup. Um, one quote that I sort of brought from uh, my time at Color was that uh, greater than 50% of human variation occurs at less than 1% frequency, which means there's a massive tail in terms of the amount of variation that there is in individuals. And, and not surprisingly, that then means there's variation in terms of how people respond to different types of food. And using something like levels can really help you understand how 
the food is impacting you and how maybe you can eat ice cream, but you can't eat rice or, you know, you can eat oats, but you know, you, you have a really hard time with brownies. Uh, and, and you need this type of feedback that Levels is able to give you to really pick those things apart. No, follow, following a particular diet won't necessarily tell you that. So I think, I think that's really what Levels does right now is it tells you how food impacts your health. We're going to expand from there to other behaviors and we're looking at adding other markers as well. And that's really what I came to Levels to help do is to figure out like what other markers could we look at? How can we look at these things? And how do we establish like what patterns are correlated with health versus disease? And it's the overall metabolic health crisis that you're kind of going after and centered around when you're looking at expanding into markers and, and potentially other products. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, the metabolic health crisis has been around for 50, 60 years. I mean, certainly my whole lifetime. Uh, I remember in medical school um, seeing these maps of the U.S. They called it the obesity epidemic back then. And it, it almost looked like an election map where states were just flipping as the levels of obesity were climbing across the country. I think, you know, they're still growing. It's not, it's not as crazy as it used to be. But, uh, you know, the, the change in the, in the way that we consume our calories has really made a huge impact on people's health and, and life. And it's not something that is talked about enough. Uh, and the, the most unfortunate part about that is that these, it's basically caloric overload um, it, along with, you know, the, the types of processed foods that we eat that, that do this to us. Um, that is the root of a number of different diseases. So insulin resistance has been linked to everything from diabetes is the most obvious to heart disease, Alzheimer's, cancer, I mean, nine out of the 10 most common um, causes of death are linked to insulin resistance and, and metabolic disease. And so this, this crisis, this silent crisis that's been building forever uh, is really something, it, it's both good and bad. I think it's, it's terrible that it's here and it's not talked about, but it's actually a single thing that you can address. And you can address it with changing your health behaviors, changing what you eat, changing how you exercise, changing how you sleep. Um, so in that sense, it's a, it's a good thing that we have a single source to really improve our health. And that's really why we're starting with the metabolic health crisis is it's because this singular way that you can use to, or this singular level lever that you can use to improve your health. And since you've come to levels, what are some of the benefits or maybe surprising data points that you've seen from consumer behavior or from your member base um, that is kind of showing that things can change and that this individualized behavioral change methodology can, can really work to really address that? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've put a lot of this content out on our blog. And, and I think, you know, I, I, one of the things that's excited me most about levels is that I think we've really tried to provide a general level of education for folks. And, and like, we're not trying to tell people to use CGMs or just use the levels product. It's like, what we've been trying to really help people understand what metabolic health is. So I would, I would go to the blog to check that out. But some of the, I think some of the most surprising and interesting things to me have been, um, number one, just, you know, the, the people who have lost 40 pounds, 60 pounds, 80 pounds after coming to levels. Um, it, we see this with other types of programs too, uh, where people either, you know, take a low refined carbohydrate diet or they in, introduce fasting into their 
daily regimen, or there are these things that you can do that really like move the needle in terms of your health and your life. Um, so there are these, I think, massive changes that we've seen with folks, people who have helped, you know, they've, they feel that they've like avoided cancer or they've like lost a ton of weight and they've reversed diabetes there. You know, th those are big things for people. And to be able to see those on a regular basis is really, uh, it, it, that's, that's really heartening. And so I, I feel like we're on the right track for that reason. Um, some of the other interesting things are just like, actually the order of what you eat kind of matters. Um, when you look at what's on your plate, you know, typically you'll start with a salad and then you move on to a main course that might involve some pasta. Well, there's a good reason for that. If you get some fiber before you eat the, the carbohydrates, uh, you actually can change your glucose spike. And so some of the simple things that you can do actually can have a really big impact uh, on people. So for instance, eating chia or nuts in the morning before you eat an egg biscuit uh, can make a big difference in terms of how you spike. So, and that's a whole other set of things that have kind of surprised me about levels and, and about how dynamic this whole system is. Are there any other, I hate to say generalized, but are there any other kind of more overarching tactical pieces of advice to help maintain that metabolic health or avoid the glucose spike? I know you mentioned the chia, the order of eating. Is there anything else that you all have found that is helpful for a large majority of people? Yeah. Well, I, again, I, th I think tying some of these things to your actual glucose are really helpful because mm -hmm. they are very individual. For some people, it's this. For other people, it's something else. I mean, the, the advice needs to be individualized by your own glucose trace. But um, I think some of the overarching things that we know help a lot of people, the biggest one to me is actually fasting. Uh, I think adopting something like a 16-8, if you can, is really helpful. Obviously, there, there are certain people for whom this is not appropriate. Um, if you've ever had you know, trouble with eating or anorexia, bulimia, anything like that, not the right thing for you to go do. But for, for folks who are and, and do feel confident in their ability to do some kind of basic fasting, that to me seems like the biggest lever that you can pull. Uh, and, and it's the easiest to communicate, right? Otherwise, we get into individual food choices. Uh, because eating, you know, raw and healthy, not necessarily raw, but, but uh, just whole food, right? Food that you would buy as like fruits and vegetables and things from the grocery store is, is super helpful. But fasting is like the simplest thing that you can do, avoiding uh, food for some period of time. I think the next thing is really exercise. Just getting some basal level of exercise pretty much every day, even if it's a walk, is really good for people. It, we can argue about high intensity exercise versus low intensity exercise, but really just moving is, I think that's the thing that's most associated with longevity and with good metabolic health. They've shown that even one solid workout can improve your insulin sensitivity. So um, those to me are the, like the two biggest and simplest levers you can apply. Um, when we get into food, I think uh, Michael Pollan actually has the best phrase that I've heard. And it, it's been out there long enough that I think it's been battle tested. Um, it's, I think it was in defense of food that he wrote it, uh, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And I think that's, that's the thing that I try to take away. I think if you can do those three things, so fasting, get some kind of exercise every day and eat food, not too much, mostly plants. You're on like, that's as good of general advice as I can give.
<laughs> no, that's really helpful. The fasting is is super interesting. I was um, back when I my first time using levels about two years ago at this point. Um, that was the number one thing I wanted to test because I was always kind of told in various ways that I was hyperglyce or hypoglycemic, which meant that fasting would not be a good idea for me. Um, and I was like, look, I have this CGM. I can actually see what my blood levels are doing. Um, and it enabled me to safely test it out um, and see that, no, actually, it, it can help me. I might be a little bit hungry hungrier at the beginning, but my body gets used to it and it helps um, maintain a flatter glucose line uh, throughout the day. So that was a super interesting insight um, and mm. really helped me kind of take control of my own health versus what the medical environment was telling me at, at various other points. Um, so cool. really appreciate that uh, that insight. And I think fasting is a good, as you mentioned, a good thing for people to try. And, and with levels, you can see what's going on as you're, as you're trying it, um, which is super interesting. Transitioning a little bit more um, kind of on, on the advice side for folks that are mm -hmm. looking to get into this space, um, into personalized medicine, into whether it's from the educational side or getting into more of these consumer health um, companies, what would you say to them that are kind of early starting out in their career? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I think uh, there's, I mean, the consumers, the consumer health space is, is massive. The, um, the health tech space is massive and growing very quickly. The, I mean, the, I guess the way I've always done it is, is try to find someone who's doing something interesting and, and also find something that you really enjoy doing because you're going to have to do it a lot. Uh, I think that that's the like having gone to med school and things like that, a lot of people plan their career 10, 15 years out. Like I'm going to be a neurosurgeon or I'm going to do this thing. And what they realize along the way is that actually they didn't really want to do that thing. Like there were a bunch of friends that I had who graduated from medical school, finished their residency. And they're like, I actually am not really happy doing this thing. And so I think for people in their early stage, particularly in these massive spaces, it's important to find something that you like and to check in a lot because your, your career path doesn't have to be linear. There's no prize for, picking something 10 years out and then getting to that place. What matters in 10 years is not that you did what you said 10 years ago. It matters that you're happy. And so uh, I think that that would be my biggest thing is, you know, pick something that you like and, and check in. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's a, that's a great piece of advice for, for anyone, whether it's career or otherwise. Um, and then as you look at your own kind of career or personal advancement, is there any um, books? I know you might mentioned a few throughout the the podcast, but any books or other podcasts or newsletters that you really recommend um, or that you dive into personally? Yeah. I mean, gosh, there, there are so many now. Um, I think the, so, you know, I've gotten really interested in some of these standard ones um, that have been producing a lot of content around health and longevity. So whether it's Huberman or Peter Atia, I think is fantastic and very well informed. Um, David Sinclair's is interesting. The the um, you know he talks a lot about longevity. I think there's some more controversial stuff in there. Um, the there are a lot of functional medicine. Uh, podcasts that are worth checking out. I think, you know, I, I tend to try to tie a lot of those back to data and evidence and things like that. Um, those are, yeah, I think those are maybe the, the big ones that I listen to frequently. Um, what, are, what are some of the ones that you really like? 
a lot of those. Um, I've been a huge fan of the Levels podcast, actually. I think it's a really interesting mix between what it looks like to be a part of or building the company um, in addition to the experts that are coming on. So it's a really interesting mix of what you're getting. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of Ali Spagnola's podcast as well. It, it adds some. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, it adds some humor, but also like some interesting impacts um, or kind of insights yes. into the into the um, category. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess actually for, you know, if you're interested in health tech, that's one nice thing about levels is we do try to be super transparent, like we build in public. So if you're interested in how we're building the company, yeah, check out, just check out the podcast. Um, it, it is a good to understand the nuts and bolts of how to build an async health tech company. I think it's probably as good as you're going to get. Um, yeah. And there's now like 200 episodes. There's more than I can listen to. So, <laughs> yeah, I've been on a couple of times chatting with some various folks around growth or building culture, team building, kind of founder to founder, founder to early team. Um, and I think it's a it's a really great place. And hopefully Precision Health Pod um, gets on this list as well, helping people get more of an insight into the industry and, and how people are thinking about it and, and what the future can look like. Um, Absolutely. Well, Thank you, Taylor, so much for for being on. Um, just to to wrap up, would love to hear where people can find you or find levels, um, and we can mm -hmm. can include that in in the links in the podcast. Yeah, so I will. You know, I actually just set up all my social <laughs> for my like a I'm doing a new set of professional social accounts, so I'll just forward you all those. But uh, levels is at levelshealth.com. And levelshealth.com slash blog has all the educational content. Um, and I think it's Levels Health on IG as well. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Really enjoyed the conversation today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.